0: Well, we will be picking back up this morning in our series through the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, will be in Galatians chapter 5, our blue uh, ESV Bibles in your seats will be on page 974, Galatians chapter 5, and we are going to look at the first part of the first verse and the title of our sermon is Freedom in Christ. And our keywords are Liberty, Grace, and Law. Now, something Americans talk a lot about is this issue of liberty or freedom. Obviously, we just celebrated yesterday the That which commemorates our independence as a nation, which was founded upon specific principles of freedom that have made the United States of America the freest nation thus far in the history of the world. But the issue of freedom and liberty is not primarily a political or governmental issue. Now, we should be thankful to God. We should give thanks to God that we have opportunity to proclaim the gospel freely, that we have opportunity to live faithful Christian lives as individuals out in the open and as a church. But as great as that is, and as thankful as we are for our national freedom, liberty is primarily a Christian issue. And it's one that we should hold tightly to. And it's one that we should consider often and give thanks for regularly. Truth be told, political or social freedom is, in some sense, unsustainable, as we are learning in our generation. However, spiritual freedom, freedom in Christ, true freedom, it is a gift from God, and he's given it to his people it is imperishable. It is everlasting. Now, perhaps some of you can relate to me. When I was 18 years old, I was primed and ready to taste what I assumed was going to be freedom. I was ready to hit the road, to go off to college, and taste the sweet pleasures of personal autonomy without a curfew, without having to report on my whereabouts and my friends, without having to adhere to anyone else's schedule or plans. And anyone who has experienced that for the first time would be lying if they told you that there wasn't some element to that that is kind of fun. It's invigorating. It's exciting to feel free, especially for the first time. Some of you moms feel that when you get to go to Walmart by yourself. But here's what we eventually learn. Here's what I eventually learned. Freedom, when handled wrongly, can be something like jumping off the tallest building We can find without a parachute. The first few seconds are an incredible rush. Maybe a little bit scary, but it is a feeling like nothing else in the world. But the more you fall, the closer and closer your consequences come to you, right? The things that you've chosen to do with your freedom come closer and closer and closer, and then maybe there's regret. There's shame. There's a lot of what-if questions, wondering if maybe this wasn't the greatest idea. It didn't take me long to realize that while staying up till 2 or 3 in the morning was certainly something I could do every single night, there are things like jobs and going to class at 8 a.m. that make that a not very wise decision. I was absolutely free to go to class or to stay in bed. However, staying in bed didn't bode well for the ultimate goal of getting a college degree. And we could go on and on. We all have examples of this. So very quickly, as, as much as our flesh wants it to be, we, we realize that freedom is not some kind of unlimited choice without consequences. It doesn't simply mean that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, without consequence. And in an age of increasing permissiveness, it's cultural blasphemy for us to even make mention of the idea of restraint. It is social suicide to suggest that there are urges, there are sensations, there are drives, there are desires that shouldn't be fed or followed through with. It's interesting that in science, which has become the religion of the modern man, only what can be objectively measured is considered open for investigation. Laws of morality are intangible, it is said, and are not scientifically knowable, but are considered purely subjective and personal. Only what one feels or experiences has worth. And so in this understanding, and many of you have encountered this in your interactions with others There are no guiding laws or principles that are absolute and objective and apply to all of us. And so there is only really one absolute, and that is that there are no absolutes. And the postmodern secularist will tell you with great confidence that they are absolutely sure that this is certain. The freedom of the world that the world desires that the world wants is complete autonomy however it's an impossible goal and standing over against the world's idea of supposed freedom and this mirage of personal autonomy is christian freedom it's a freedom that is both internal and external in our thought life, and in our actions. Christians don't act as people who are autonomous. We understand that God establishes our freedom within boundaries that are set for our good. We are free to make choices, and we are free to make lots of choices. In fact, we have more choices to make on our own using biblical principles than we have hard and fast rules that God has laid down. We're free to follow external standards, or we can follow our own whims and our own standards and understand very keenly that our choices have consequences. We reap what we sow. Now, Christians have often struggled with the idea of Christian liberty, and it's something we've addressed several times And I agree with our Puritan forefathers that this is an issue that is of utmost importance. In fact, some of the early Protestant reformers believed that a right understanding of Christian liberty was second in importance only to justification by faith. Now, there are two primary errors when it comes to Christian liberty, and they're probably quite obvious to all of us. First, there are those who take a position of licentiousness. They believe that having liberty means that anything goes. We're not under law, and for the Christian, the response is that we are under grace. Grace covers all of my sins, so I shall sin freely and not place any moral demands or expectations upon anyone, because, after all, that is judgmental and harsh. Didn't Jesus die so that I could live a consequence-free life in the end? That's licentiousness, or another theological term, antinomianism, no law. The other, of course, is the opposite end of the spectrum, which is legalism. Now, while God has set out his standard, These often well-meaning individuals have sought to add to God's law to ensure that not a hint of sin is present in one's life and practice. The problem, of course, is that it breeds self-righteousness. It has an impossible standard as its end goal, and it leads to greater dishonesty about the condition of one's heart and the reality of one's actions. And it completely disregards the reality of grace. And so it's important for all of us to think through the concept of Christian liberty with this in mind. And I really want to encourage you to think specifically about where you find yourself in this spectrum between complete and total license and antinomianism versus legalism. Where are you on that? And chance uh, the, the reality probably is that all of us can look at specific issues and say, well, on this issue, I am probably a bit more licentious, while on this one, I am a bit more legalistic. And if you really want to get honest with yourself, you will come to the reality that I am licentious in the areas that I enjoy myself. I am legalist. I am a legalist in the areas that I don't enjoy, I have a distaste for, or I struggle with in an area of sin. However, the question is not, what do I think? The question of any issue is, what does the Lord think? What does His Word say? Now, if we've learned anything through Paul's letter to the Galatians yet, I hope we can at very least say we have a better understanding of the relationship between the law of God and the gospel. Paul has been rather persistent in his letter to detail the distinction uh, through these various methods and approaches we've seen. He's used his own personal experience and his encounters with others. He's used biblical examples through narrative He's used the covenantal structure of God's word and promises. Paul continues to revisit this theme of law and gospel over and over, balancing the two together, wanting the Galatians and also wanting us as his readers to live in conscious communion with God, not under a weight of slavery under the law, but also not as a people who have no regard for the law of God. In other words, the call is to balanced living, a balanced understanding of the Christian life, and all of the implications of being a people who've been transformed by God to walk in the newness of life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, it's important for us to have a good understanding of what the Bible teaches on the whole regarding Christian liberty as we get into Galatians chapter 5. Paul really sets us up uh, well to talk about this today in our first verse. So we're only going to really be looking at the first part of it, and then next week we'll dive into the broader argument that unfolds from this concept. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 The Apostle Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And that's our focus. I think it's important that we would define first what Christian liberty is. And there are, there are three things I want us to understand regarding Christian liberty to set a good foundation for where we are going in the remainder of Paul's letter in chapters 5 and 6. So up front, a good definition. What is Christian liberty? Here it is. Christian liberty is the freedom of a Christian to make decisions and take actions that proceed from faith and obedience in matters that are not explicitly or implicitly commanded in the bible without fear of sinning against god or neighbor let me say that one more time christian liberty is the freedom of a christian to make decisions and to take actions that proceed from faith and obedience in matters that are not explicitly or implicitly commanded in the Bible without fear of sinning against God or neighbor. This is a very basic definition, and if you're trying to write it down, I'll put it on Facebook or something for you. Hopefully, we can deal with all the implications that fall out from this definition Uh, In uh, today and in the weeks ahead. Now, three main issues that I think are important to address and that will add to our understanding of this definition. It'll help us to see the boundaries of liberty. We will address Paul's main objective, where our liberty ultimately comes from, and what it sets us free from and to. So here is our first point this morning. Every person by birth and by nature, is in bondage. The Apostle Paul has addressed this on several occasions as we've looked through his letter to the Galatians, but it's worth repeating. It's it's worth thinking about once again so we can truly grasp the significance and be all the more thankful for Christian liberty and what it is a Christian is freed from. Apart from Christ... After the fall of Adam and Eve, there has not been a single person born who is born not in bondage to their own sin, to the influence of Satan, and under the bondage of the law of God. So let's consider each of these individually. Every person, by birth and by nature, is in bondage to sin. As Paul has shown us in Galatians, one of the significant differences between those who are in Christ and those who are not is this issue of sin. When we come into this world, we come into the world with a nature that is fallen, a nature that is unable to not sin. In other words, no matter how good one's motives may be, Apart from Christ, any action that is taken is taken with some level of sin involved because its end goal is not the glory of God. So the unbeliever cannot not sin. And so they are enslaved to sin and it puts them in bondage. Every every desire they have, every desire and want and longing that enters the heart is ultimately rooted in sin. Jesus says, we read earlier in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Paul addresses this repeatedly throughout his letters, the idea that by nature we are in bondage to sin. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 20, he says, when you were slaves to sin, addressing the people who have been transformed into new creations. It was inevitable that they were in sin. In Ephesians 2, he writes, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 6, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And he tells us if we present ourselves as slaves to sin, it only leads to death. So the message of scripture regarding the human heart is that we are not simply unwilling participants in sin, but we're actually active participants in continuing in bondage to sin. Because we love it, we cannot find escape from it apart from redemption in Jesus Christ. Another way to say that is that we are in soul slavery. And there is no more devastating enslavement than to be enslaved to sin. There is no worse a condition that one can find himself in than to be tied up in bondage to his sinful nature and will. Men might enslave other men. Nations may enslave other nations. But the most horrific enslavement is that which comes from inside as a matter of the heart. And it leads to everlasting death. Perhaps you've talked to someone before Who has told you that their rejection of God, their rejection of the gospel is based on the idea that they want to simply continue in life doing the things that God forbids? They know what God has said, they look at their own life and recognize their own sin, but they simply do not care. They want to continue in their sin. Their desire, in other words, is to not have to answer for their actions, but instead they want to continue walking in sin. I had a man tell me one time that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't quite old enough yet to repent. He wanted to continue on a while longer doing what he pleased, and maybe when he was a little older he would settle down and try to figure out this whole issue of God and what God requires if it all will fit into his life. Mind you, no man knows when his life will be snuffed out on this earth. And the man who walks in sin without regard for God is not a free man at all. He's a slave to his sin. He cannot know freedom as he continues in that sin, even though his flesh feels liberated. It feels free to say, I want nothing to do with God because God will put some kind of restriction on my life that I don't want. It feels free to walk in sin. But it is the greatest enslavement known to mankind. There is nothing worse. Well, we know also that every person by birth and by nature is in bondage to the influence of Satan. Again, in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes that by nature we follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And just so we not exclude ourselves from that description, he writes, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Interestingly, in our natural state, we will most readily laugh at and reject this very point because the natural man does not regard any talk of Satan or the supernatural to be real. But isn't that sort of the very thing that Satan would want? As the one uh, who the Bible tells us disguises himself as an angel of light, the intention of Satan is not to reveal himself and make himself known in a showy, out-in-the-open kind of way, but rather behind the scenes and in the shadows, letting men assume he's not even there. Satan is perfectly content with all men going to church and doing good deeds for their neighbor and giving away all of their goods and money to serve others as long as it's not for the purpose of bringing glory to God. For some, the oppressive nature of Satan's enslavement will be a heavy burden that weighs down and leaves them feeling completely helpless and hopeless. For others, Satan's enslavement comes by way of continual fulfillment of fleshly desires and giving into temptation. But be there no mistake, for the person who is without Christ, the influence of Satan, is present and does enslave. So a person, every person, by birth and by nature, is in bondage to sin, to Satan, and to the law of God. Now this may be somewhat confusing at first, but it's something, remember, that Paul has addressed several times now in his letter to the Galatians. Remember early on, we said that there are two covenants, and we are all, every man, woman, and child, is under one of two covenants. We are either in a covenant of works with God, whereby the perfect fulfillment of his law is required if we are to have everlasting life. Or we are in a covenant of grace, whereby Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law is sufficient and applied to a person as their own. There are no other options. We will either seek to earn our salvation on our own, which is an impossibility because of the enslavement we've spoken of, or we will trust in and rely upon the salvation that was purchased for us through the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Those are our two options. So for the one who's not in Christ, there is a bondage to the law of God. So the Christian can look at the moral law of God, and delight in his law. We can seek to live according to his law, not as a requirement for our salvation, but as a rule of life, to live holy, godly lives in communion with God in a way that pleases him and is for our good. The one who is not in Christ can only look to the law of God as an enslaving weight that cannot be removed. Remember, uh, Paul taught us previously in Galatians that everyone who seeks to live according to the law must fulfill the entirety of the law. And because of man's inability to do so, he stands condemned at the moment of his conception. And the more one tries to fulfill the law, the more he fails and falls, It's a continuous cycle of trying and falling because the standard of God's law is not good. It is not good enough. It is perfection. Samuel Bolton writes, The law requires obedience from the whole man of the whole law for the whole of life. It is a terrible, dreadful thing to be under the bondage of sin to be under the bondage of Satan. And yes, to even be under the bondage of the law of God. If you are here this morning as a person who has never trusted in the final, sufficient life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the good of your soul, I commend him to you. While your sin and Satan and the law are all very powerful and dreadful and enslaving, they show no mercy. They operate completely separate from love. Jesus is loving. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is a gracious Savior who will not reject you, who will not turn you away if you come to him humbly in faith and repentance with a desire to be right with him, that you might walk in the newness of life. And so God's call to all men everywhere is to be free from the bondage into which you were born, into which you live. If you are not living life with Christ, it is a call to you to repent and believe that Jesus Christ might be for you. Well, the second thing I want us to consider this morning with regard to Christian liberty is that all who are free... From bondage, are set free because of the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Galatians five one identifies how it is that we are made free from this bondage. For freedom, Christ has set us free. It is Jesus Christ who sets us free. And this is at the heart of the gospel that Paul has been continually clarifying and highlighting throughout his letter. Christians are sons of God. Christians are heirs of God. Christians are free in Christ. All of this is because of what Christ has done. None of it is by our own works. But it all begs the question, and it gets to what we are looking at today, and that is what we are free from and what we are free to. Now, given our previous point, the the obvious, the most obvious conclusion is that for those who are in Christ, we are free from the bondage to sin and to Satan and to the law of God. The Christian is no longer obligated to sin. We have a non-obligation to sin. And because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within the believer, we have the ability and we have the will to not sin. And yet, because we live in a fallen world and we remain in fallen flesh, we will sin. However, we have the hope, we have the promise of repentance and forgiveness. Of those sins that are committed. Because Christ has already endured. The penalty of those sins on our behalf. As a result of our salvation. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. Into the kingdom of light. So we are no longer under the dominion. And the reign of Satan. But we are adopted as sons and daughters. Of the most high God who has created us. And who has sustained us. And who will never cast us away when we are his. We move from one family to the next. Legally we are justified. Forever we are adopted as God's children. And because Christ. Has fulfilled perfectly the law on our behalf, the Christian is no longer obligated to the law as a way of salvation. However, we are made free to delight in the law as a gift from God and as a rule of life. So we are free from the law as a covenant with obligations that must be upheld that we might be saved. And so as a result, we're also free from the curses and the condemnation of the law. Christ has endured the curse. Christ has endured the condemnation for all who put their trust in him. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law can and will accuse us day after day after day, but for the Christian, it cannot and it will not condemn us. Brothers and sisters, that is tremendous freedom. We are in no way under the law for judgment and life, but only under the law in the sense that it provides a way of life for those who are in Jesus Christ. Bolton writes There is no further power left in the law than is for our good, our humiliation, our edification. And this is intended to lead to our furtherance of grace. Now, to think of all of this in the context of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we can also say that for the one who is in Christ, we are also free from the bondage to the laws and demands of men. In 1 Corinthians seven twenty three, Paul writes, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now, Being the very astute Bible scholars that all of you are, I know what you're thinking. Yes, but the Bible commands us to submit ourselves to the laws of the common kingdom of man on the earth. We must obey civil law and authority. You were thinking that, weren't you? I know you were. And with that, we should all agree. The Bible does teach us this very thing. However, what we're saying is that we are not to acknowledge anything or any one or any law as supreme to God and his word. Our souls and our consciences should not be restrained by the laws of men, but by God alone. And this is, this is really getting at one of the major errors that we see amongst Christians when it comes to the issue of liberty. Our tendency is to want to make laws and to want to build fences in addition to the revealed will of God that keeps ourselves and, our, and others from sin. And in doing so, we are attempting to bind up the consciences of others in a way that God himself has not bound consciences. So, as an example, as a preacher of the word of God, I have a responsibility, I have an obligation that is twofold in this regard. First, It is a responsibility of the one who preaches the Word of God to bind the consciences of all who will hear to the explicit and implicit commands of God so that we are living life faithfully, holy, and obedient for the glory of God. Our consciences should be bound by the Word of God. However, secondly, I have a responsibility to never bind the conscience of anyone to something that is not explicitly or implicitly commanded by God in his holy word. So you see, the authority is not me, and it's not what I decide to say. It is what God has said in his word. No more and no less. So, for example, you haven't uh, heard anything about bacon for a month because I've been gone, so it is a perfect example this morning. As Christians, we have the great and wonderful and majestic privilege of enjoying this sweet, salty, savory king of meat called bacon. And God in no way forbids our eating of it. However... God does forbid the sin of gluttony, which is a lack of self-control. It is an overindulgence. In other words, it's taking a gift that God has given us and what a glorious gift it is and abusing that gift in such a way that it becomes sin. It's allowing our appetites to control us And in doing so, we overeat, we overindulge. So what a well-meaning but legalistic and wrongly directed Christian might do is say, well, because it's so amazing, the tendency is to enjoy bacon too much. So we should not even touch it, we should not even smell it, and we certainly shouldn't eat it at all. That way, we won't be tempted to gluttony. The best way to not be a bacon glutton is to not eat bacon. But here's the problem there's still things like cake and ice cream, and mashed potatoes and ribeye steaks. But the tendency is to want to make an issue out of something that it's not. I, in that instance would be blaming bacon instead of the heart that is controlling the desire. It's a heart that refuses to display and to exercise self-control. So you see, the answer to sin is not to build fences that get us further and further away from specific sins. It doesn't work. That was the practice of the Pharisees that were roundly condemned by Jesus because of it. The answer, of course, is self-control. Man will find a way to pervert and distort and misuse every single gift of God we can think of. You name it, if it's a gift of God, man has distorted it, man has perverted it, man has used it in wrong ways. So the answer is not more laws. We need more grace to apply self-control that and that it would all be empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Now, this is not to say that one who has struggled with specific things should not take extra precautions to prevent further abuse of what God has given. But the restrictions they impose on themselves should not be laws for others to follow. In other words, if one day... I determined that my personal bacon intake was gluttonous and that I am being controlled by it. I am unable to partake of it in a controlled manner. It could be a good thing for me to make for myself a rule that I refrain from it altogether. God help us all. But it would be a sin hear me say this, it would be a sin on my part to bind your conscience to the same requirement. Because in doing so, I'm taking from you a freedom that was purchased for you by Jesus Christ. I would be enslaving you where Christ has set you free. And in doing so, I've caused you to refuse and call evil and dirty what God has given as a gift and has called good and clean. Now, none of this means that our freedom is an open door to simply do whatever gratifies the flesh. And we're going to deal with that later in chapter 5, and we won't get into that this morning, but I simply want us to know that before we consider any restrictions, that we really do have true freedom as Christians in Christ. And we see that in our final point this morning. Those who are free in Christ are free indeed. We read earlier in John 8, 36, The words of the Lord Jesus when he said, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Brothers and sisters, that is amazing, wonderful news for you and I. Again, Samuel Bolton writes, This is no imaginary freedom. It is a freedom indeed, a true and real freedom. Whom the Son makes free are free Indeed. It's not, we don't have a freedom in Christ that leaves us in partial bondage. Christian liberty frees the Christian from all kinds of previous enslavements. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the bondage of Satan. We are free from the bondage of the law of, of God as a covenant. And, and we are free from death and hell and wrath. And this freedom is everlasting. If you are in Jesus Christ, you will never again come into bondage to these things from which you have been set free. This is why it is so utterly crucial that we understand Christian liberty. Or else we will be prone to put ourselves under the enslaving power of these things from which we've been set free. This was the problem of the Galatians. As they were following the false teaching of the Judaizers, and this is the problem with many Christians, when we fail to live as those who have truly been set free. And instead, we live as those who continue under a weight of bondage. The freedom of a Christian is a freedom that cannot be taken away. Brothers and sisters, I am in no way a prophet. I am not the son of a prophet. And the only thing I have going for me in this regard is that I work for a nonprofit. But here's what I predict. It will not be long before the very national and political freedoms we enjoy as Christians here in America will be taken away. I suspect that churches will no longer be free from taxation. It won't be long before speaking openly about sinful lifestyles and following through with church discipline and calling evil, evil, will all be considered discrimination and hate speech and leave preachers especially open to significant financial penalties and jail time. Regardless of an individual's convictions, Teachers will be asked to teach things contrary to those convictions. Medical professionals will no longer have the ability to refuse specific practices and patients. Government employees will not have the ability to refuse services provided by the agencies they work for. We have already seen businesses being forced to pay enormous fines and close shops because of cries of discrimination. All of this will continue to get worse. And as Christians, we need not pull back from engaging the world. We need not dilute the truth of the gospel and the sure promise of judgment to all who reject God and his word. And we must continue to stand with Christ and all that he has called us to be and do, regardless of the consequences. And so positively, what comes of that? is that it will no longer be profitable in any way to identify as a Christian. So all of the fakers and all of the false converts will fall away and the church will be pure in a way that it has not been pure for many, many years. False apostate churches will cease to exist and there will be greater unity among the body of Christ as a whole because we will no longer be as concerned about our differences, but much more concerned about standing together as the people of God and the body of Christ. It will be difficult. It will cause much hardship for many of us and particularly our children and our grandchildren. However, And I hope not one of us forgets this when we begin to feel the squeeze and genuine, true persecution comes our way. Our freedom is not granted to us by a nation. Our freedom is not granted to us by a culture or a society or a rule of law that man has created. Our status as a people who are not enslaved and held in bondage is not a matter of legislation. Our status as a people who are free is because we are free in Christ and all who are free in Christ are free indeed. And in light of all of these things are not the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans most sweet. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are free indeed. And nothing and no one can ever take that away from us. So we can give thanks to God for our freedom in Christ. Let's not live as slaves because we are free not to. Let us always remember that we stand with God and there is not one person and there is not one thing that can stand against us. For freedom, Christ, has set us free. Let's pray together. Father we thank you this morning we thank you because in reality we have very sober reminders all around us that there are enslaving powers that wish to bring great harm to your people and to destroy your church at its very foundation but we have the sure promise that Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not and cannot prevail against it. And Father, we rejoice that no matter what comes our way, no matter the persecution, no matter famine or sword or distress, that we are free indeed because we are in Christ. And I pray, God, that as your people, as your church, you would reaffirm that certainty in our hearts, that we would grow in greater unity and greater love for one another in Christ, and that our joy would not be diminished but that it would increase. And as all of these things may come our way, we ask, dear God, that you keep us faithful, that we persevere, and that all the louder we can proclaim that Christ is king and we bow our knee to no other. May it be for him and him alone that we live and move and have our being. We love you, God, and we thank you for the freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ, a freedom that cannot be diminished or taken away. And so may it be that each of us is mindful of that freedom day by day and that we not live in bondage. As your people, when we are in bondage, we are in bondage only because we put ourselves there. May we be mindful of our freedom and walk as free men and women in Jesus Christ in a way that glorifies you and brings great renown to your name on all the earth. And we ask this in the name of the one at whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Amen.